Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 55 of Trail Society, brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And this will come out on August 29th, which is deep into UTMB week. We'll be over there. Hill, are you coming over? Do you know yet? Maybe, I'll know. Will you? Maybe you'll see me, I don't know yet. Hilly doesn't know if she's there or not. Hilly and I are <laughs> there doing doing stuff, hanging out, yelling at people. Hopefully you've come to find us. Um, I'm just gonna say <clears throat> Moody Moody's Coffee. <clears throat> if you uh, wanna track us down, uh, we're probably outside of that establishment a few times <laughs> over the course of the week, drinking coffee in a corner. So you know where to find us. I'm wondering, you know, as kind of, we, we wait for, you know, races to unfold this week. If you guys are excited about anything in particular that is happening during UTMB week. So it's like the first, you know, the year for, you know, the structure of the UTMB week being like the final. So there's obviously a lot of competition, but I mean, like, well, that's is the there same. is the question. Like, I think the question is like, will we see the same level of competition? In my mind, CCC and OCC, those fields look really, really good. Mm-hmm. UTMB's field is getting a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I think with the addition of Courtney to the women's field, that's kind of elevated that field. But mm-hmm. I think that going into it, we weren't looking at maybe the strongest field. Yeah that we've seen. And it's kind of an asterisk year of us trying to figure out this new system. Yeah. I, I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. Um, but I don't know. It's also, it's also, it's also cool. Cause it depends on, I, I mean, the conditions of UTMB and like, you know, like that's such a crazy race. So it's always cool to see like who will come on top. I know some of the favorites, like, you know, Katie Scheid and Marianne Hogan, they're not going to be on the start list for the women's field. Sorry, I'm just going to talk about the women's race because I feel like yeah. that's Katie's racing OCC. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool to see. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, there's obviously like a lot of a lot of hype around it. Um, but and I think you know every brand is going to have like different activations. I see, you know, Solomon camps, normal camps over there. Um, so it'll it'll be cool to see what Emily Forsberg is racing. Um, I'm excited to see she's her back CCC, on the circuit. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure she's doing CCC. We've got you know Ruth Croft, you know, mm-hmm. making her step up to UTMB. She's done and won OCC and CCC. So to see Ruth, you know, she's run 100 before with Western States, but this would be her longest race to date. She was supposed to do Madeira back in the spring, but didn't feel completely healthy or prepared for it. So she didn't. And Madeira is kind of like a mini is oftentimes referred to as like a mini UTMB. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of curious to see Ruth on the start line and what that yeah. looks like. Like there's some interesting, some interesting She's been doing marks. a lot of work around like the night running aspect and the fueling aspect and mm-hmm. stuff. So I'm really, I'm really pumped for Ruth because she's obviously like a stellar athlete and yeah. Like, it's cool to see, to see like how much how much she like mixes it up um but yes i mean something something i also like for back to the utmb start line i think a lot, if you look over like the past at least the podiums for the last like couple years like those runners for the females aren't returning i mean like mimi katkas is experiencing some injury and so she's you know kind of taking a step back katie has shifted to the, the, the other distance because she raced western states i mean courtney's back but like then we have caitlin gerben she's also going through another injury um kami brias i'm not sure if she's um i don't think she's injured but i don't think she's running UTMB. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of, I think like mix up that can happen, like who can, who can be on the podium this year, but, um, it's cool to see like kind of like the other, um, 
you know, US and and um maybe like European athletes like kind of stepping up to the plate and seeing how what the times kind of look like mm-hmm. this year too. Yeah, yeah it could be a good race for some new person to kind of step into the spotlight. Yeah, yeah. or people who like have been in that top 10 group, you know, yeah. year after year, mm-hmm. but don't quite have the shine that yeah. some of the other athletes athletes have. You've got um, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here, but we got Petter Engdahl stepping up into the hundred mile distance on the men's side as well. But I think that in my mind, one of the coolest things about this finals week is that while yes, UTMB, the 170 K race has been the crown jewel for forever. I am so hyped on OCC and CCC because I think those races have just been elevated year after year after year to the point where they are some of the most exciting races, if not the most exciting races of the weekend. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, Yes, UTMB is UTMB, et cetera. And I hope that's not a battle of attrition. I hope that it's like a really good race, like getting to see, you know, that the battle happen on the men's side and the women's side last year was really awesome. But without depth, you don't get that. And so it's like, that will be kind of the question mark of like what kind of depth shows up on race day versus OCC and CCC where like, those start lists right now are yeah. absolutely terrifying. Savage. Like, you just keep going. You just like keep scrolling and it's like, oh damn, like yep. every single person on here is a heavy hitter. Mm-hmm. And like those race distances are just easier to race to the completion, you know, like they're going to be duking it out all the way through the finish, which is just super cool. Wherever you're listening to this from, if it's at home and you and you wish that you were over in Chamonix and it's kind of killing you that you're not, there's still so much stuff to watch from afar, including like the, the main live feeds that UTMB TV puts out. Um, I'll be doing commentary for OCC, CCC and UTMB this year. Um, as well as free trail is putting out some live stuff over the course of the week, kind of doing previews and, and post-race shows for OCC, CCC, and kind of after UTMB on Sunday. So tune in to the free trail YouTube channel for all that stuff, because we will be going live fairly frequently throughout the week on that channel as well. So hang on to your, your pantaloons because it's going to be a really, really exciting race weekend before we dive into some, some pertinent news We have to give a little shout out to the folks over at AG1. They've been with us since the beginning. Love traveling with them. I've got my travel packs over here in Europe. I know we're recording this ahead of time, but they're already set aside because I leave on the 15th. So my bags are getting laid out and packed. If you're on it. Yeah. Well, I gotta, gotta stay on top of it. (laughs) Gotta make sure you have everything you need when you hit the road. And if you too want to try athletic greens, you can go over to athleticgreens.com slash trail society. And there you're going to get a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D in that little dropper form. It's so convenient to just drop it into some water and go. If you live in the Northern hemisphere, you need vitamin D. And then you can also get five free travel packs of AG1 to take on the road with you wherever that next travel stint may be. So thanks to the folks over at AG1 for helping us out. When we recorded last, we did not yet have the numbers for the Tour de France Femmes, but we do now. Have you guys kind of peered over or did you watch any of the 25 hours of live coverage that was broadcast? I did. Not the whole thing, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I was shocked to see, or I guess not shocked, but I was stoked to see the final outcome being someone kind of who is normally a traditional sprinter and who kind of just like rallied the final couple races to pull ahead of the first place girl. It was like such a race. Yeah, it was a huge race all the way to the end. It was really, really cool to see kind of the 
all of that be highlighted. When we've been looking at the the number side of things, well, I think the total viewership, um, particularly like French viewers, was a little bit lower than last year. Um, it was shown to 20 million um, French viewers, which actually is like on par for like country population. Um, when we look at um, like what percent of the American population watches like the um, the end like the uh, NBA finals, et cetera, like very similar as far as like country population percent watching a big sporting event. So that was super, super cool to see. It was streamed obviously on places like Eurosport. Um, so streamed to seven nations nations in Europe. There they garnered over 80 million viewed hours, which is a lot of viewing. Um, and they reached just on Eurosport coverage alone, 15 million viewers, which is a 7.14% increase over the 2022 viewership. So stepping things up digitally over at the race website, latourfems.fr. Um, they saw an 80% increase in unique visitors over the 2022 race and um, just like an overall 60% increase in site visits. And then on the race's social media channels, they saw the biggest bump. Um, it's got 1.87 million members across all social channels, and that equaled a 797% bump from 2022, um, leading to 100 million views across the race's social properties. But the big thing that was also kind of highlighted ahead of the race is that despite that, despite the growing numbers, because that's always the argument for like, why don't we pay female athletes the same as male athletes? There's still prevailing issues on the financial side. For women in road cycling at the highest level, again, racing the Tour de France Femmes, for the men's tour, the winner takes home 500,000 euros or close to 552,000 American dollars. Um, and then there's an additional 2.5 million euros that about $2.8 million that is distributed to riders throughout the race. On the women's side, the winner of the tour gets 50,000 euros or $55,000 and there's a prize pool of 250,000 euros um, that's distributed to the prize pool. So it's um, like 10% less. Yeah, it's, it's 10% it's, of the men's. Yeah, it's 10% purse. of the men's the men's Oof. purse, which is yeah. pretty darn low for <laughs> for the viewership for it. Um there's a great article kind of pre pre-tour on fastcompany.com and they talked to Cassandra Spring, who's the global brand manager for Live Cycling. And she said, organizations like the Cyclist Alliance are working toward equal prize money, um, said Spring from Live Cycling. There have been fundraising campaigns and brands that have pledged to pay out more. I'm seeing incremental change. I'm hopeful there can be big change. And that's like, you know, like I think I'm hopeful that things like increased um, media coverage, more viewership, et cetera, incentivizes um, companies and sponsors and race organizers to try to do everything they can to, to start to step up those prize purses. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a, an interesting thing to see coming out of the tour as far as what does that discrepancy actually look like between, mm -hmm. um, the men's race and the women's race for one, one race specifically, obviously there's differences between those two races. Um, and actually the race organizer for Fort Tour de France Femmes is a former professional French female cyclist. And like, they're like, she's working super hard to make this all happen and to revitalize this side of the sport. Um, but obviously we still have a long ways to go. So just interested, interesting mm -hmm. to see kind of what mm -hmm. the, what that turns to in 2024. Yeah. And honestly, like I was looking, um, at the men's tour de France viewership and it, 
was only double the women's, which I mean, like is, is, is significant, but I guess it's not, you know, 10% of the men's viewership. <laughs> yeah. It's you not know, like it's the way, it's like, not like the women's is only 10 is only garnering 10% of the men's. Viewership. Yeah. Like they like, had 20 million views. Men's had 40 million views. So it's like, yeah, there's a discrepancy for sure, which we would, we would expect, but it's not that significant in relation to what they're getting paid. Yeah. So interesting to kind of keep that in mind. Oh, I can hear my dog eating breakfast upstairs. She's got this like tumble toy and it's like tumbling around the ceiling. It's great timing. Um, another thing that I picked out, if you're not following the gist on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter, whatever social media platform you're using, the gist is really, really cool. Um, they're based out of Canada and their coverage of women's sports is a highlight to my week. Um, I'm always like copy and pasting things and, and, uh, texting it out to friends. But one of the things that came out this week was that Google um, has been overdue to modify their search engine to benefit women's sports coverage. Um, and they're finally stepping up to do so. This will, um, to, they're going to be more inclusive of women's sports. Essentially, Google search engine optimization will be undergoing big changes. Um, now the information box is at the top of the results page, will be improved to feature women's sports, expanding the coverage of over 380 leagues. Other changes include easier access to live streams and highlights of top women's leagues, including the WNBA and the Women's Premier Soccer League, and will feature current and trending women's events and suggested search results. Because right now, right, it's going to default to the men's ones, i.e. there were mm -hmm. comments on this post where people went to search for a specific um, subset of matches happening within the Women's World Cup. Like they were looking for like Group H matches. And it, what, it didn't show the active Group H matches. It showed the men's group H matches from their world cup, which is not happening mm -hmm. actively. So that's kind of a search engine optimization issue. Um, Google has been receiving backlash on the issue for quite some time, most famously over naming male football star Cristiano Ronaldo as the all-time international goal scorer. Spoiler alert. It's not him. Christine Sinclair, Canadian athlete. Um, <laughs> so it's like, oh, like, come on, come on guys. So since Google has a market share of 92.24%, that's pretty widespread misinformation for billions of users. So aside from fighting unconscious bias against women's sports, Google's updates will hopefully also boost funding towards women's leagues as more eyes will drive metrics most commonly used to secure funding, i.e. interest, viewership, et cetera. So that is pretty, pretty huge coming out of Google in the past week, um, which will hopefully mean that when you go to search for whatever you're looking for, whatever live stream you're looking for, whatever sports league you're looking for, whatever active results whatever you're looking record for, you want. whatever record you want, <laughs> it'll be accurate and include women's sports. So that was, uh, that was really cool to see. So again, follow yeah. the gist. They are full of excellent information. Yeah. My only thought around this was like, while it was really cool to see, and I think obviously is going to be very helpful for women's sports. I was also kind of shocked that it hadn't been implemented before, but you yeah. know what? Got to make change at some point. <laughs> yeah. When you don't know you're part of the problem. This is like last year where it was, people were like, well, what do you mean? They didn't understand that they weren't showing the women's race as much in like the broadcast side of UTMB. I'm like, it's, they just don't think about it. It's, just, it's not like, it's not this like intentional yeah, it's not mean bias. Mm -hmm. It's this like totally unintentional thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what's happening on like the search engine side of thing. Like they've optimized it for like, broad-based results, but that is naturally biased due to society and how we prioritize men's sports. So mm -hmm. it's like trying to, trying to help push the needle back towards, um, getting some other information out there is hugely important. 
The only other thing I would, I'm curious about all this stuff with the, with the viewership and stuff is right. We have numbers from that, but what about like in person, right? Like, you know, the people lining the streets of the Tour de France fans versus like the regular Tour de France. We have those numbers. Yeah, I don't know that there's any good way to count that, right? No, like, I no one's out there with a freaking clicker being like, I've seen <laughs> well, 2,400 be... <laughs> people bike past me. But it would morning. be cool. It would be really cool. Because like, you know, we started off this thing about like saying that the viewership in Europe, and especially France was down. Well, maybe they were just all out in the streets. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe they weren't watching it on Equip <laughs> or person. whatever. They were there. They were there on the sidelines. It's very possible. I feel like I knew a bunch of Americans who just happened to be over there and got to witness a bunch of it. Yeah. So the final bit of news that we want to cover and touch on is this will kind of not be old news by the time this comes out because maybe some of you haven't seen it but it's USATF finally announced stuff about Olympic marathon trials for 2024 um it's been like I feel like pulling teeth to get the, this information out to the runners that are actually racing um there's been a lot of like a lack of transparency but essentially it was announced that we knew that they're taking place in Orlando Florida on February 3rd, but we found out recently that they would be starting the race at 1210 for men and 1220 for women. And that caused a lot of backlash all over the internet, um, which I think gave a lot of people like this reminiscing feeling to when LA hosted the event in 2016. And while, um, while temperature was not the only factor that day, there were a bunch of other flubs. Like they decided <laughs> they needed neutral aid on the course, i.e. not just your personal water bottle, but extra water stops on the course. They went and bought a bunch of sponges so people could use in race cooling tactics. However, the sponges they bought were pre-soaped. And so runners <laughs> were like trying to like squeeze sponges on them and like watery soap was coming out on them, which is like probably not great mid race, not like not the pleasant surprise that you wanted as the soapy water is running down your face. Um, so they've had, they had a lot of issues at LA. We're not sure what's going to happen here, but we've also been told that they believe the schedule was chosen for TV broadcast timing, which I think is what's rubbing athletes the wrong way. Like, is this about the money or is this about like, providing the best competition format possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's been kind of an interesting debate that's been going on. And I'm wondering, Keely, you, you had been talking about this. I'm wondering if there's any kind of initial takeaways you have from like watching the fallout online of in and around marathon trials. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been like a mixed bag, obviously I, I see where they're coming from, from one lens because it is going to be, you know, relatively hot for February because most athletes who are running in this trials, they don't live in Florida. They live in like mountain towns where it's actually going to be pretty cold. And so I see like their pushback here where it is going to be really hot. And then seeing it start at noon, that again, like doesn't really the hottest make part a of the day. Sense. Yeah. And so like, I totally get it. But I also like, there's also some people who are like, you know, tweeting about like heat training and heat adaptation and how you could just prepare for it. And, and I also see that lens and I, I kind of like from a Western States perspective, kind of love the extra variable they added in like a masochistic way. Cause I'm yeah, like, Des, Des Linden also <laughs> loves this factor too. She's like, Ooh, super shoes, not as important. Still have to yep. be smart, like yep. count me in. So, yeah, so I think it's kind of fun. Like, obviously I don't agree with them if they are doing this from a publicity standpoint where they just want to get more TV viewership. I don't think that's necessarily the right tactic because I do think they need to think about the sake of their athletes. And if you look back at LA, like a lot of women crossed the finish line and just collapsed and had to yeah. go to like med tents. And so, yeah, no, that's not like these women are and men are pushing themselves to their absolute limits. And so like, if we have the ability to give them a little bit less 
of a suffer fest and like a more controlled environment that's not super hot and maybe put people into med tents, then like, I think we should prioritize the the athlete's health and not like publicity, but yeah. And the women, the, the organizers have said, you know, we're, we're ready to pivot if we need to pivot, which would be like responsible, right? Like if it's going to be a, if it's going to be a really hot day right now, the temperatures are predicted to be in the mid seventies with a humidity of 73%, like not terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously humidity gets you though. Yeah, Oof. for sure. And it's like hard to use in race cooling in that humid environment, uh-huh. et cetera. Right. Like it's harder to cool down. And these athletes are really good at pushing themselves to their absolute limit, not protecting themselves, i.e. Mm-hmm. But, and so I think while the race organizers say they're going to pivot, if yeah. they need to, I think it's really hard for the athletes in good faith to believe that that might happen. Totally. There's also some pushback too to be like, well, the Paris marathon is going to be hot. Like mm-hmm. it's good. It, it'll like, it'll likely be very, very hot. The Tokyo marathon, they actually moved it kind of last minute um, earlier by an hour. The women's marathon, I think started at 6 AM local time to try to negate some of the heat that day. And I think it only, I got, I think it got to 86 degrees during the women's race. Um, and they actually wow. moved it to a different location where it was going to be less structurally warm mm-hmm. due to kind of road surface choices and, and buildings by the race event. But it's like, yeah, I don't know that what's going to happen <clears throat> come race day, but I do know that there's a lot of athletes that are a little yeah. bit skeptical of a Orlando, Florida yeah. noon start right now. If you're, if you're like an independently contracted sauna builder in Flagstaff or Boulder, you might start getting a lot of business. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so, so start selling those things. Or if you know, Abby and Cordis hall, you can just all go hang out in their sauna in their backyard in prep for, uh, for Olympic trials. I think Grayson Murphy will be kind of one of our trail trail starlets, um, who will be towing the start line at marathon trials. It's always fun to track the trail athletes that, that go to bridge to make, to make those events happen. So that'll be really cool to kind of follow along with as well. But yeah, only a little bit of drama, only a little bit of drama. Hilly, do you have any thoughts on it? I just had a question and maybe this is like, this is silly, but, um, you know, with training my athletes, like if we're training for obviously like a heat race, like maybe this is a little bit different, but I'm for people who are training at sea level for high altitude races, we use sauna, right? So can it be the opposite? Like are the high athlete uh, athletes are the people who train at, at high altitude, like, do they have a little bit more adaptation naturally for running in the heat? Like it's still no, kind of the it's, same. It's plasma volume expansion is the thing that you're looking for. So you it's, need, yeah. so it's a sweat rate adaptation and it's a plasma volume expansion. Mm-hmm. So some of that, so the plasma volume might be okay mm-hmm. at altitude if you're yeah. if you chronically live there, but heat adaptation is still going to be important for like sweat, right. sweat rate and thermal tolerance. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a little bit, but not, not, yeah, the, not, 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 not as much as you need. Cause I always know like when I go for my first like hot run, even here, it's like, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a big, um, learning curve that needs yes. to happen. My body takes, needs to takes a little bit. Yeah. I think yeah. anyone who's seriously going to make the team or who are pros, you yeah. know, akin to doing an altitude camp, they're going to do, mm-hmm. they're going to go. It's like, it's like the pros for Kona go there like a month early mm-hmm. and they just like do their final block in Kona. So I would not be surprised mm-hmm. if there's some final block training going on in Florida or somewhere in the South East, um, to get in that warm, warm, humid or warmer, humid environment. Before we jump in, I guess, to our meat and potatoes of the day, we have to give another shout out to a sponsor that helps make this possible. And that is the folks over at The Feed. I have been loving our time with The Feed, our one-stop shop for all our nutrition needs. Um, 
and uh, the ability to mix and match and try new things, um, bring new things into our pantry month after month. If you want to create your own personal best ever snack box, you're going to go over to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. And there, when you sign up, you're going to get a $15 credit um, quarterly. So $60 over the course of the year. Um, we also are doing water bottles with the feed. They're really freaking cool. You can customize them with your name on them. Um, and we're trying to get a bunch of those water bottles over to UTMB with us potentially. So if you're listening to this and it's UTMB week, come find us. Cause maybe we are hoarding a bunch of really cool trail society water bottles outside of a place like, again, <clears throat> cough, cough, moody, moody's coffee. Um, has anyone gotten anything especially, especially exciting in their feed box recently? Hmm. Um, I mean, just the staples that we always talk about, but uh, no, it's actually... Turns out we have our favorites and we stick to them. And if you want to question us, we'll tell you you're wrong. Yeah. No, I've been trying out some, um, just some different things, like, cause like fueling on the bike, especially for some of these like mountain bike races, like having something that's pretty easy to, to go down. Um and I mean, a favorite of mine are, and, and, and like mixing that with solid foods, like JoJ bars are amazing. So like, it's like, you feel like it's like a fresh cookie. And if you like, it like warms up in your jersey pocket slash running vest, it's awesome. Um, but then, um, like these bonk breaker chews I've been doing and they, they have some extra kind of electrolytes in them. So that's also nice. Cause it's like quickly, easily digested, but then I feel like I can chew them. So it's, um, kind of stimulates digestion in that way. Uh, I'm still really liking like the chocolate. It's like a chocolate cherry, chocolate haven, something like this, uh, spring energy. Nice. Seasonal yeah. guy. It's kind of hard to eat on a bike. Cause it's also, it's like really solid, but mm. I still love it. <laughs> You're like, it's a little thick. It's technically it a gel, thick. but it's a little thick. Yeah. Keely, there's anything that a... you've gotten recently that you're into? No, but what I've been eyeing for my next box is there's a uh, there's a collaboration between Vaffles and this new like jam company made out of chia <gasps> seeds and fruit. Mm-hmm. And it's like a superfood jelly jam. And so you can get like a bag of Vaffles and the jam for like the same price as the Vaffles mainly. And so I'm going to eye that. I'm sure now you're eyeing it. And so <laughs> <laughs> Corinne is like doing a quick search right now. <laughs> yeah, she's I've got like four tabs open it. and I'm like trying to order it as we speak. <laughs> But sick. Yeah. You guys know we're, we're waffle humans. Yeah. But hopefully we have bottles for UTMB, but you know, we'll, we'll let you guys know via social if we end up getting them. Yeah. Follow us, follow us over at the, uh, the trail society Instagram page to, uh, follow along on our antics as we take on Europe here <laughs> in just a little bit. Um, but I guess we're going to dive into our meat and potatoes for, for today. We got to sit down with Jordan from rising hearts, Um, You also probably know them as native in LA on Instagram. Really, really cool. So Jordan Marie brings three white horses. Whetstone Um, is Lakota, a founder and organizer of Rising Hearts, a filmmaker, a public speaker, a project manager at UCLA and a DEI consultant and so much more, honestly, just like totally dumbfounded. Jordan's a person who I think I've found intimidating for years just because like they're amazing and outspoken and passionate and sitting down with her for this interview made me feel like I have a new best friend and, and I'm so inspired by their work. So we're going to get out of the way and we're going to dive into this interview with Jordan and we hope that you love it as much as we did. Hi, 
my name is Jordan Marie Brings, Three White Horses, Whetstone. I wear many hats. I come from the Lower Bull Sioux Tribe in Central South Dakota. I currently reside on Manaka and Manahoac lands here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm uh, the, the founder and organizer of Rising Hearts. I'm an athlete advocate for Jonji. I am a filmmaker, a public speaker, a DEI consultant, and a public um, project manager with UCLA. So I, I keep busy. Mostly I'm chasing my what, year and a half um, little little son who's already running and loves to run and will never walk unless he of course too. So I'm always chasing after him. So things are always exciting in this household and wherever we go. Yeah. Many hats and very, very full hands is what it sounds like. Yes. So we'd love to start by hearing about um, where you're from, your roots, and telling us a little bit about your childhood and growing up in an Indigenous family. So I'm originally from South Dakota. I grew up there for the first nine years of my life. So I was surrounded by my community, the culture, the language, and my dad, a professor who got a job offer out in Maine. Um, and we saw that as an opportunity for maybe different experiences, maybe better opportunities. So we took that leap of faith and jump and moved to Maine. And it was such an isolating experience compared to my life in South Dakota, um, being surrounded by people that looked like me and then going to a place that had so many trees, which was very claustrophobic coming from someone who's from the prairie. Um, and just being surrounded by people that didn't look like me. And so it was very obvious that I stuck out and was very different. And people didn't know what to think of me. Um, a lot of people uh, misidentified me and assumed I was Black or Asian, um, especially in a state that they didn't know five federally recognized tribes existed there. And that was one of the first things we did when we moved there was like, find the natives. Um, and my dad has been just such a supporter biologically. He is not my dad. Uh, my biological dad is Navajo, Dene. Um, but my dad, who's been my dad since I was like three months old, has very much prioritized me being with my culture and being surrounded by that and having every opportunity to connect with indigenous communities. So um, he just knew that was super important, especially with a big move like that. So we tried to find all the natives we could in the state and visited all of the communities and um, just tried to have some sort of connection with the lands and the communities there at a very early age. Um, but I would say that experience really was hard. It, it made me question who I was. It made me ashamed to be who I was. I was, I experienced racism for the first time, prejudice. I experienced a hate crime for the first time. And so it was just like a very abrupt jolting time, um, especially as a youth. So uh, I really had sports to lean into. And luckily um, I didn't experience any of that treatment within running um, and naturally gravitated towards running and somehow ended up always being the best in the class, best in the gym, best at getting the school records in the gym class for the mile time trial or whatever. Um, and so that led me to trying out for like the cross country team and indoor and outdoor, but I was born to do it. I'm a fourth generation runner. My mom was a sprinter. My grandfather was a middle distance. My great-grandfather was long distance. My biological dad was um, distance. And so indigenous running is very rooted in our cultures. And I mean, it is everywhere in the world, but it's very, very special uh, to, to me and to my family. Um, so that's something that I gravitated towards and felt like I was part of 
the family cool club. And my grandfather is the first one that took me on my first run, uh, going to visit him after our first year uh, living in Maine. So I just thought it was like such an honor to run with my superhero for two miles. And he lived at the top of a hill. So like that first downhill was like super fun and like, oh, this is so much fun. I could do this. And then we turned around and all uphill and I'm just like, this sucks. And maybe I'm not meant to do this. So I stuck with running as long as I could just because my family did it and kind of that internal pressure that I put on myself. Um, but I really stuck with it and it brought me to community. It brought me to other runners and people where I felt like they accepted me. Um, so the running community was primarily like my best friends, my my community. And it was really hard to make friends outside of that because that's where else I was experiencing the racism and the judgment and all of that. So running really kind of just kept it together for me um, and just is always something that is the common thread throughout my life. And I would say I've gone through like four different stages of running, of running because my family did it, then running for native representation as a native youth athlete going into college, running D1 at University of Maine, and then coming out with, I had an eating disorder uh, my first few years of college. And so my college coach really helped me get on the right track and helped me prioritize my health and well-being first. And then my, my relationship with running just grew so much that that third phase really became, I just love running. I'm doing it for me. I am not doing it for anyone else. And just things got better. I was getting faster. I was treating my body better. And then I moved to DC after college. And then that's where that like fourth, I guess, stage grew into running with a purpose and intention and being part of community runs, being part of prayer runs that were happening in Washington, D.C. to bring greater awareness to Bears Ears or to protect Oak Flat and like all these efforts being led by Indigenous peoples and fostering this connection through movement and purpose. So um, that's where I started intersecting the two, but that really didn't fully happen until 2019 until my prayer run for missing and murdered Indigenous peoples, where it kind of was like the last straw um, of feeling like the invisibility of this issue and the mistreatment and violence and racism that Indigenous peoples are experiencing was just, I was just fed up with nothing being done. Um, and so that prayer run at Boston was my way of being able to give back to those who can no longer run or speak and be able to honor them in the best way that I know how, and that's running. Um, and so I guess you could say fifth phase now is postpartum running, you know, learning this new body of mine and adjusting to it and, you know, being really hard on myself because like, man, I was in great shape. I was able to do this, but now that I just had my son a year, a year and a half ago, it was hard to get back into shape and wasn't where I was expecting it to be and thought running, I've been running for 25 years of my life. It's going to be so easy to get back into it. And it wasn't. So it was really hard to like work against my mind and my body and like two different things, wanting two different paths. And again, I'll make this special announcement. Now I'm pregnant, expecting identical twin girls. And no so way. it's really hard because I miss running so much. And like, I just got into my second trimester first trimester, I was at Western States, horribly sick, um, oh, napping whenever warm I could. And, uh, and I, so warm. And then the altitude didn't help. And then I also had my, my baby with me and like our whole family there. So, um, it was really hard to be there, but 
this is like the first time where I like haven't been able to run and like, it's been so bad and had a medical issue and we had a scare um, that put me on bed rest for a little while. So right now I'm only able to like walk and like move, but it's been really hard to like have the one thing that's been your like constant throughout your whole life. And you just, you can't do it right now. And it's just like bugging me. Um, But it's also just teaching me a patience and appreciation and I'll get back to running when I can. Yeah. And we're going to kind of, I think, jump around a little bit here, kind of dig in a little bit more to kind of those earlier phases of your running before fast forwarding to some of the really, (laughs) I think, big and exciting hats that you're wearing presently. How old were you and your family moved to Maine? I was nine. Nine. So like very, very young to feel very, that's, I think, did you, when you moved to Maine at nine years old, I feel like nine, it's like third, fourth grade. It's like this time. Did you actually like immediately sense that otherness? Because I think that's like very interesting, right? Like middle school, high school, that stuff is like very in your face, very apparent. Like kids are just kind of mean as coming in as like an older elementary school kid. Did you like, how was that experience of that initial transition or like trying to grapple with like, who am I? Where am I? As opposed to like having this very supportive, like multi-generational cultural upbringing before that time period. It was just hard. It was like made abundantly clear. I was different. And so I was treated different and like get stared at or asked weird questions, which, you know, kids ask weird questions all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that they weren't being like mean intentionally. I feel like that more intentional part comes in the middle school, high school range. But um, yeah, it was just very isolating because I went around town. My dad was a professor, um, got to see the the college students, but it's like, I never saw someone that looked like me until, unless like my mom and came to visit and she didn't live with us for that first year until after. So, um, it really was like, I didn't have anyone else that looked like me to look up to or to confide in. And luckily I'm super close with my dad. He's like a girl dad. So I could talk to him about everything. And he really tried to prepare himself to, for these kind of situations. And I think he did a really good job. Um, And we could openly talk about these experiences and so I can better understand them. But I think like the more hurt aspect of it all came in middle school and came in high school when you're getting these verbal attacks, these derogatory slurs being said to you. And these are the first times that I'd ever heard of them because I hadn't experienced these things before. So um, it also made it very clear that whenever we went back to South Dakota during the summers for our annual family gatherings and our powwows that we'd go back for, it made it very clear the racism thrived in the state of South Dakota. So because I had that experience outside of it, I was able to see it and recognize it wherever we went. Um, And so that's what made it very clear to me was indigenous peoples are different and people don't understand us. People have the wrong narratives about us and they can be really mean and hurtful and hateful. And it's what inspired me for the rest of my life to want to get involved in community advocacy and trying to make a better future for our communities so that we're not having these experiences and that, that importance of it hasn't ever become that important until I had my own child and making sure that, you know, he, his dad's white, so he's going to be mixed. Um, And so mixed children deal with a whole set of other, 
you know, hardships of being a mixed race kid. So um, I know he's going to probably have some barriers or some battles coming up for him, but I'm hoping, you know, through the work that we do in the community building that, you know, I do through personally and through Rising Hearts, you know, hopefully those conversations will be easier and hopefully the collective good work of community doing this work across the world will help make it easier and for him to be, you know, himself and for our girls to be fully themselves unapologetically. Yeah, I guess, tell, uh, speaking of kind of community, it sounds like when you found running or when you when your running evolved to a place where you could do it with a team, you know, kind of into those like middle school and high school years, that's in juxtaposition, obviously, to like feeling like an outsider, I'm sure a lot. Like talk about the importance of the the community that running oftentimes automatically gives us when we're otherwise maybe in a place where we feel super alone. Yeah, I think... I think it was just about the team aspect of it all, like people cheering for you and you're on a team. And especially if you're on a team that's going after points because you as a team want to win. And especially I think in like middle school and elementary, they like combine boys and girls together. And like, you just want to do your best and you thrive off of each other's energy of cheering for each other. And for me, I never looked at racing as I want to beat that person. I always looked at it as like, how far can I push myself? And I guess the harder and the fastest I push myself, like that'll result in hopefully a good result that will benefit the team. And I think I just really connected with the community there. And it also allowed me to travel to different towns and got to make new friends in other places. And so you get excited when you get to travel for me, you get to meet your other friend that you met um, because you did long jump and you guys, you know, had the same marks together and, or you were in competitors with each other in the 800. Um, so I really looked forward to that, but that was also where I got to meet other athletes of color coming from the bigger cities um, in the state of Maine. And so the town that I lived in, we were a class A school, but our school comprised of like, I think it was like 28 towns of like tiny, tiny towns and townships that like build this big school. Um, and so for a while in elementary school into middle school, I was the only kid of color. And then middle school, we had two other black athletes. Um, and so it was like three of us. <laughs> and then I think in high school, I think it ended up becoming like four, maybe five of us. Um, but it was still like very small, still very much a minority. Um, and just these different experiences that the rest of the school, uh, the student body would not have any idea as to what it is to be a person of color walking in those hallways and um, playing sports. And I think I still longed for people, even within the running community that looked like me and someone that I can relate to even more beyond just the training part or the competing aspect of everything. Um, and I didn't get that really until like college and after. Yeah. Where, where did you end up going to college? I went to the university of Maine Orono, So okay. black bears. Awesome. Did you, I guess, like kind of taking that next step forward in your running career, we got that big, beautiful overarching picture to start, but kind of like just taking this baby step forward of moving from a, being a high school athlete to being a collegiate athlete and starting to maybe you know, discover more about yourself and more about this next chapter of running and getting to travel, travel more broadly to compete and to see more people just kind of, there's like a, sorry, there's a jet, like literally above our house right now. <laughs> no worries. Um, I think again, like starting college, it kind of felt like everything started all over again with feeling very different and very isolated. And so 
I really liked my coach. I really believed in his philosophy and it wasn't a one size fits all approach. Um, and I had visited other programs like USC and Minnesota and all across the country, basically. And I really liked his because um, it was about the collective goal, but he really put a lot of focus and attention on the individual athlete. Um, so I really appreciated that. And he was someone you could confide in and felt safe and you could trust with. And so when I first got there, my freshman year was extremely hard. I redshirted. Um, you want to fit in, you want to make new friends, but also like I was a native American studies minor and a political, political science major. And I just still, I didn't have community. I didn't have people that looked like me. Um, I couldn't find them and I would be going to the native American studies center. And sometimes I would see people, um, like my professors. So I actually, you know, developed these really good relationships with my professors and they were the people who I confided in. Um, but it was all simultaneously happening as I was getting out of an abusive relationship from high school into college, it was happening simultaneously with my eating disorder. So there was all these things kind of stacked up that made my freshman year really, really hard. And then going into my sophomore year is where my coach like put me aside and he's like, I think you need to just get some blood work done. Something's not right with your training. Things aren't clicking. Let's figure this out. And so the doctor did the lab works, came back and he's like, what are you doing to yourself? And that was the first time where like, I had to publicly say I had a problem and I had to communicate it to somebody and had been living with this secret for at least three years now. Um, and so told my coach, told my partner at the time and then told my family. And that's when the transformation of that running of doing it for myself and prioritizing my health and well-being really changed. And that's where everything connected. That's where I felt like I was able to have better relationships with my teammates. I was making more friends. And then because of the help of my professors who were native, they were like, hey, Penobscot Indian Nation is three miles down the road. Go visit them. They're having a community round dance. You should go. Um, and luckily, two of my teammates who were really supportive, they were non-native and they're like, we'll go with you. Like, I'm sure it's probably nerve wracking to go by yourself. Let's go with you and we'll support you. So they went with me and I went to the community round dance and I walk into the gymnasium and I just hear the drums. I hear the singing. I smell the food and immediately felt like home. So like the same experience that I get in South Dakota, I experienced within seconds. Um, so I stayed, we stayed, we ate dinner, we danced, we sang, we introduced ourselves to everybody. And so for me to have a better quality of life, I think to experience college and be a runner and make it all work is I started volunteering and ended up working for the tribe. Um, and so I was able to have that community almost every single day in little bits and pieces of it. Um, and then that's when my health was getting better and I was gaining the weight that my body wanted and everything just clicked. Running got so incredibly easy. I wasn't fighting myself. Um, and then just everything clicked relationships and connection and being able to work with a community that looked like me and that I could be part of, um, and not feel like I had to compartmentalize every single thing, but I was able to braid it all together, which made me feel stronger and more confident in who I was. And that's where I was like, no, I need to get back on track and follow my dream and goal to go to Washington, DC, to be an advocate, to do the things that I said I wanted to do in eighth grade. Um, so it was a really incredible experience that happened first semester, sophomore year that changed my life. Yeah. I don't think I'd wish being 19 again on 
anyone. I think it's like looking back, it's like, oh no, it's, I'm glad that I don't have to go through those, those same isolating struggles anymore, at least hopefully tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, that next step that moving to DC, the kind of putting on like running, taking more and more of an activism role in your life, kind of that next chapter and how that bridges into you ultimately running the Boston marathon to advocate for um, missing and murdered indigenous peoples and getting to raise kind of like, yeah, I think marrying that like love of running and that like passion for activism for your community, how those things like finally got to come together in a really big way. Yeah. So after college, I stayed in Maine for a year and a half, I think, um, training with my coach, but I also was starting to run for New Balance Boston um, and switched everything to the half marathon um, and bigger distances. So I really, I didn't, I don't think I was ready to leave that safety bubble yet, but finally built up the confidence and putting out the applications into DC to native nonprofits and um, finally got a call back from National Indian Health Board uh, to be a congressional relations associate and took it, you know, literally on a whim, like within a week, I packed up everything and drove down. And what made it easier and more comforting was my parents lived two hours outside of Virginia um, because they had moved away once I went to college and everything. So it was nice to know that they were only going to be two hours away from DC. They could help me out if ever I need it or I need a place to escape. But I took that job and just tried to learn as much as I could learn about the lobbying world, learn about these pathways of communication of how things are happening that impact indigenous communities. Um, And again, experienced a lot of ignorance there. Um, Met with some congressional members that asked me if we still lived in teepees. Um, Some didn't know that they had indigenous representation within their districts. So it was a very eye-opening, but also disheartening experience. Um, And also walking in those hallways as we're advocating for these specific um, healthcare legislation pieces that were critical to Indian country, um, it was obvious to not see people of color in those offices. And um, I ended up quitting that job after nine months because I wanted to be an intern for for, um, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree of the state of Maine. Um, So I started working for her for almost five months and chose not to continue and move into a staff position because I just saw so much privilege on the Hill and me being raised and how I I grew up. That's just like not how I I view and see the world as being handed to you on a silver platter. Um, And so I'm here in those briefings, I'm in hearings, I'm trying to learn how this is going to impact not just indigenous people, but like people who actually can, um, you know, have their lives changed or be severely impacted. Um, And I'm sitting with people, other interns who are being like, oh, my dad wired me money. Uh, Oh, my dad got us a condo. Oh, because he has this connection to this person. And I'm just like, I'm working a free internship right now. And I'm working a minimum wage job part-time trying to pay for a $1,250 studio apartment, barely making ends meet. I'm here to learn and to like move up and like want to make a difference. And you're just talking about partying and like getting money and all of this stuff. So that was disheartening. And I chose not to do it 
to leave the hill. And I just started working with other community group, grassroots groups, um, which led to me working at the administration of Native Americans, where I was basically a project manager, grants manager, cheerleader for our tribal communities that received funding from the ANA, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services. And they were just leading or proposing these incredible projects, like life-changing projects for their communities, language revitalization and immersion and you know, economic or environmental programs and youth-led programs. And so this is the part I wanted to be in. I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. I'm supposed to be at a community level where I have direct relations and communications with them. And I just, I loved it. And I got to go visit my grantees every year um, and just everything happened in the way that it was supposed to. And then DAPL happened, the Dakota Access Pipeline happened. And that's where I became a grassroots community activist or an organizer, however you want to label it. Um, I never saw myself as being the one standing on a soapbox with a mic. Um, I went to rallies and marches. Um, my first one was to stop the KXL pipeline, which was going to go through my homelands. But I had watched people that I knew and respected. They had it. This is not for me. I can volunteer, but I do not want to like be a leader or a speaker or anything like that. I wanted to be more behind the scenes. Um, but when DAPL happened, a friend of mine had asked me, hey, youth are running over 2000 miles from Cannonball to DC. You should do something for them. And I was like, well, only thing I know how to do is run. So maybe they'll be okay with running an extra two or three miles. Um, and luckily they were, they were totally fine with it. And I organized this run water, run for water from the Supreme Court to Army Corps of Engineers. And that was my first time like in charge, trying to get police permits, getting the land blessings, getting the drum group, getting food, crowdfunding to like make sure everyone's taken care of. And nothing happened until the last day, like hours right before and everything came together beautifully. But it was like the most stressed out I've ever been. I was like, how do you operate? I'm a very type A, I have to plan things out, color code everything. Um, and this is something that's just not my style. And at the end of the day, my friend asked me, so you want to do this again? And I was like, nope. Um, and then three weeks later, the youth that I had met and helped were being attacked by dogs. And we haven't seen something like that since what happened in Alabama during the civil rights when they were being attacked on the front lines. And so that really motivated me to, to put into question, what else can I be doing? What am I not doing? Like I'm sharing, I'm tweeting, I'm doing whatever I can to like amplify, but that's not enough. And so actually what really motivated me was my grandfather had passed away. He was dying of cancer. And after that youth run that I had organized, he passed away two days later. And that was the last thing that he knew that I was doing. And the last text that I got saying, um, you got this girl, which was, he always said that with running and everything. And during those three weeks before those dog attacks, I was really contemplating, like, why do I even run anymore? Like, what is running if I don't have this person in my life um, to nerd out on splits and watch these track meets and road races and everything? Like, what is life, basically? Um, and so when I saw those dog attacks happen and my grandfather was such a big youth advocate and he was a coach, he coached other youth runners. And I was like, I guess, turn grief into something more positive and more empowering and a way to honor his legacy. So I was like, I can turn this grief and 
give back to the youth because that's what he would have done. And so that's where I was like, I'm going to become a community organizer. And that's where I started organizing marches and rallies and um, speaking on a soapbox, speaking on TV, like doing all these things that I really still do hate um, because it makes me still feel very (laughs) embarrassed and uh, really awkward. But that's how I was going to be able to continue mourning in a more healthier way by being able to honor his legacy and continuing that. And that's where the running intersecting with advocacy and having more purpose and intention and not so much emphasis on a fast time. But if I'm training, I'll trust the training. I'll trust my coach. I'll trust the process. But I also have to give back in some way through movement. Um, And so with those things like leading up, that's what led up to the 2019 Boston Marathon Prayer Run um, was that last minute decision of like enough is enough. I can't take the mistreatment of indigenous peoples anymore, not just myself, but what I'm witnessing in my communities and hearing lived experiences of what they're going through and seeing more missing persons fires and testimonies of families and it still being invisible and going unnoticed. So that's what led to that split decision of this is how I'm going to give back. This is how I'm going to honor without the intentions of ever thinking it was ever going to make any sort of publicity or because it wasn't about that. It was about running in prayer and carrying those prayers and carrying those 26 names and dedicating that last point to, to my grandfather and just having that purpose and intention. And it just, it changed my life. And now everything is bringing more meaning and purpose and into running. And it's such a strong community builder too, um, and bringing us all together. Yeah. I mean, that's such a strong way to honor his legacy. So that's really, really awesome. And then you went on after Boston Marathon to kind of take all of these thoughts and develop your own organization called Rising Hearts. Um, And Rising Hearts kind of encompasses a lot now. And I'm wondering like how it started and if it always started with those three arms that it has now. And if not, like how has that kind of evolved over time? Yeah. So Rising Hearts was founded in January of 2017. um, And it really was because I saw the lack of representation of indigenous community activists and organizers within DC. I saw a lot of community groups and like Sierra Club and like these big environmental groups um, organizing on behalf of Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other indigenous voices, but they didn't really include them on their platform. So we organized it to be another community organizing group that was indigenous led and providing opportunities for indigenous voices to be part of the organizing with us. Um, And so we were really centered on more so environmental um, activism and really trying to support the Standing Rock tribe. And over time, it just kind of evolved into that, but also helping to try and change the name of the Washington football team there um, in DC. And just really coalition building focus. We were trying to make sure that we were building these bridges with other community groups to make sure that we are interacting, that we are learning from each other and not remaining siloed within our own movement spaces, which is really important because I don't think we're ever going to have a better, improved, safer, more visible world, that future that we're all like trying to fight for. I don't think we're going to have that if we're not learning from each other, if we're not doing that work ourselves internally, but also as a community to get that. And 
that's something that was super critical to Rising Hearts is making sure that we're providing those opportunities for, for Indigenous peoples, but also making sure that those intersectional pathways exist or that we are making them ourselves with community. Um, and that led to us, you know, trying to push Washington, D.C. to divest from Wells Fargo and other banking opportunity other banking pathways that were funding the pipelines um, and other dangerous extractive projects across the country. Um, and then the pivot with rising hearts of why we're so more community program focused and moving more towards movement came after the murder of George Floyd. It really was kind of an eye-opening experience because so much up of so much of my activism until then you know, really centered on the indigenous experience and making sure that we're communicating with other communities, but it was always centered on indigenous peoples. But seeing what happened to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, it made me reflect on how I was raised. So Matakuya Yasin, we are all related or all my relations, is how we how we view our connectedness to everything, that everything is interconnected. And when we are talking about offering prayers or doing something, it's not just the benefit of our own, of our own community or of our own family. It's the benefit of the entire world, all the sacred ecosystems and everything in it, even the people who may not be on a good path and people you disagree with. It's really about the protection and, and the involvement of everybody. And so for me, that's the indigenous version of what intersectionality is, which is the theory of Kimberly Crenshaw. And so I wanted to go back to that way of being taught and way of living and Rising Hearts transformed into making sure that, yes, we're still going to advocate for Indigenous peoples and provide those opportunities as much as we can, but we're also going to share those resources, share the privilege that we may have as an organization and those connections to other community groups who are underrepresented and disadvantaged um, and who don't have these opportunities to be seen or to have gear or any of this stuff. Um, so we want to make sure that <laughs> hi bud. <laughs> we want to make sure that he had they have that opportunity um, to be in community. So we created the programming uh, Indigenous Wellness Through Movement during 2020 when everything got canceled. You couldn't go to gyms. We created a virtual online community where we worked with so many different wellness teachers and advocates who taught Pilates, who taught you know powwow dancing, who taught strength-based training, who did meditation, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we recorded it. We provided it publicly. We had a, sometimes up to like 100 people registering for these classes because it brought us together virtually when we couldn't be in public spaces anymore. Um, because we really also wanted to prioritize our own well-being when going through something that was very scary at the time and uncertain. Um, and then eventually we grew into our Running on Native Lands program, which I've always wanted to see land blessings and land acknowledgements be implemented at the races that I go to. I want to see more involvement of local Indigenous community, but also just Indigenous voices in general, having access to those opportunities and being able to give their own narrative of who they are because the wrong narratives out there about us doesn't help with the education that is put out. Um, or now the banning of certain books, including indigenous books not being taught and indigenous story and history um, along with black history as well. And so I just wanted to make sure that we're working with race directors, brands, companies, and eventually it just led into just being a big consulting arm of working with 
so many different groups and run groups, colleges of what is a land blessing versus a land acknowledgement? How does one adopt a land acknowledgement? How can we facilitate the relationships and communication pathways between these said entities with the indigenous voice or community that we're going to connect them to. And then eventually, if everything goes well, Rising Hearts backs out of that process because we hope that they trust each other and are connected enough that they're going to continue these relations. Um, and then we go on to our next like project and community they want to work with. Um, and then that led to the Running With Purpose Athlete Advocate Program. You know, I once I got the attention from that prayer run, I realized I was introduced to more other athlete advocates, other athletes who were doing similar things with their running or sport um, and bringing awareness to something that was super important to them. And I was just like, man, we're, there are so many of us, but also so many people are asking me, how did you do it? Why did you do it? How do I take action and have it be authentic and meaningful? How do I bring advocacy into my own sport or into my running. Um, and so I, I created this program. We have 33 of us right now, um, all coming from different backgrounds and communities, all different advocacy um, pathways. And we work with brands and companies that provide us gear. We have some other partnerships with some other brands, but the whole main, main purpose of it is to not have exclusivity with a single brand. We want brands to see this as an opportunity for them to support community on a local level, to support these local advocacy initiatives and to support the work that's going into the community building of it all. Um, and being able to also provide opportunities for athletes who may never have had a chance to run at the Boston Marathon or Western States or the Toronto Marathon or these other races that we're working on. Um, and so that's just been super meaningful. And our, our check-in calls are always great because we're all doing so many incredible things. And then our newest arm is our storytelling arm. We want to start um, being able to document uh, storytelling and these opportunities to share, to uplift these voices who are doing incredible work because those are the stories we want to see and we want to hear more of. Um, and so that's what we're slowly starting to do is we're collaborating with other uh, media groups or we're doing it ourselves and being able to tell these stories. And so we worked with Patagonia, we worked with Activist, um, and then we have our own, me and my husband are going to be launching our own production company soon. Um, and so Rising Hearts is going to be the the social justice, environmental justice, storytelling arm of that company. Um, and so we're really excited to have Rising Hearts um, being able to be a platform for more visual storytelling. And hopefully it impacts people in so many different ways and can continue to educate. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you had hinted at doing some films and having some films coming up. Um, but let's talk a little bit about those sponsors that you talked about and I know you have a lot of brand sponsors you work with um, and you're a little bit, you, you're, you're selective about who you choose to work with. So can you just expand on how you choose like who to work with and like how you actually vet them out before deciding to support them or work with them and make sure that they're not just trying to elicit like tokenism and say that they're supporting you, but actually, you know, not put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. So after that prayer run, all of a sudden there is interest in me because I'm an indigenous athlete, a person of color and who advocates for missing and murdered indigenous peoples. So I think it was very overwhelming 
And I didn't know anything, you know, I, I was excited because my grandfather always wanted to have a sponsor. And this is just something I just thought was so cool because it'd be the first time it would happen for our family. And so I didn't, I was naive and I got really burned with my first ambassadors, like sponsor athleteship. Like I got really burned and it was the most traumatic still and triggering experience I've ever experienced. And it really kind of damaged my perspective of like, how meaningful are these opportunities, especially for people of color coming into those spaces. Like it felt very extractive. It felt very toxic, experienced a lot of lateral oppression um, coming from other athletes. And I was the only indigenous athlete at that time. Um, So it was like a really exciting opportunity because it was the first. And so when I went to my next brands, I wanted to work more smaller brands. And sadly, the smaller brands can't give you as much as those big, big brands can give you the salary and everything. Um, But I thought that was more authentic and it just felt like the communication was better. So what I really look for is the access to the, to the brand and how amenable are they to your ideas and, you know, they pitch you everything when they like give you that contract. We want to do these, like give us your ideas and the projects you want. We want to make sure that we do them. And I think one thing that a couple of the brands didn't like was like, I literally look at that contract and I go by what they agreed to. And I follow up on, okay, we haven't done this. We haven't done this. Like you said, you're going to send me here. That hasn't happened. I was supposed to meet your DEI and be on the team with that and help do cultural like trainings and cultural sensitivities and all that kind of stuff. Anti-racism where none of this is happening. And we're three quarters away into my first year. And you put me on a campaign with my face or something. And that was it. Um, and so I don't think they really appreciated being called out that way. Um, and I'm just someone who's just not going to stand for that because I will not be tokenized and I will not be made to feel like I'm a check in the box and I will not be made to feel invisible. And so I think I was just the squeaky wheel. And rather than take me up on my offers of, we can still improve this. Like there are still ways we can make this work and continue into a second year, but they chose to either drop me with the first year, not even being reached, um, or just like ghosting me entirely. And so when it came to creating like running on native lands and running with purpose and needing to reach out to brands, that was the very first things I I told them when I had these conversations, when I finally reached them was you need to make sure that if you are going into a contract with us, or you just want to donate things to us whenever we ask, like you need to make sure that you are supporting the work that we are doing. Like you actually have to believe in the advocacy that we stand for and not just use it as a prop to to show corporate or the board or, hey, we're giving back to these communities for these efforts. We can check these boxes off. We want to make sure that you're actually providing not just resources, but actual FaceTime with our athletes and being able to support them and get to know them. Um, And so that was something that I'm like super protective of because I don't want our athletes to experience what I did and, you know, get burned or feel tokenized in any kind of way. Um, So that's just led to getting some of our athletes actually getting brand sponsorships, which I'm so excited for them. Um, And it's just led to really cool opportunities where they've been on podcasts, been on specific campaigns and, you know, these paid opportunities as well, or 
being chosen to go to a specific race and having like everything paid for and um, just having these incredible life-changing experiences. Um, And so it's just been really special to like cultivate these relationships slowly, um, but also, you know, making sure that we're holding these brands and companies accountable in what they're publicly saying that they're going to do as a company wanting to give back to community and um, being able to uplift voices and diversity and inclusivity and accessibility and affordability and everything. Um, And so I think that's the work I also find to be my favorite. It's the most challenging. It's the most emotional draining. But if we're working towards that future, especially within the running community, to be that place and space it's worth it. And I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. And it's like, otherwise it's like the, otherwise you're dealing with brands or a lot of talk that's very disingenuous. And I think that that's like a huge, a hu- I think deservedly being called out. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, besides, besides maybe being additional squeaky wheels, like what else can the trail running community do to encourage brands to, to make sure that they're they have actual belief in the advocacy work that they're maybe helping to put a little bit of money into, because I think that that is like, we can, we can do that. We can be part of that. Even if it's just like being the other squeaky wheels. Yeah. I mean, I, we saw it in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd is like all these brands and companies, you know, wanting to do all these outward facing commitments of DEI and what that looks like. We do not stand for racism and violence And that's like what so many people got caught up in. And that's where a lot of people ended up getting hurt and damaged because I kept trying to advocate, even when I did sign with those brands, to do the internal work first to create the infrastructure that can provide a safe space for athletes of color that you're trying to bring on because they're coming from these communities of advocacy and as an athlete as well, that they need to feel safe that they need to have an environment where they feel comfortable um, and to have that support, not just for them, but they need to recognize that they're not just representing themselves as an athlete. They're representing them themselves with their community. I never saw it as a sponsorship just for me. It was a sponsorship for everyone that I am connected to um, that can hopefully benefit from this one opportunity. So I think brands need to do an evaluation of the kinds of programs or ambassadorships or elite programs that they're creating and where we fall under. I kept advocating for maybe don't put us in like the same category as like your Olympians or your fastest athletes, because we're not the same. Like we may still be as fast, maybe some of us, um, and hopefully more will come, but we also dedicate so much of our time to creating a difference and impact in this world. And not to say that those other fast runners still don't care or not doing that. They're focused on a medal. They're focused on the fast time. They're focused on making a team while we're focused on community building and hopefully trying to be the best runner that we can. Um, so I always advocated to creating a different ambassadorship program, a change makers program or something that is more tailored to the community advocacy and the athlete at the same time. Um, and I think the infrastructure is advocating for obviously more funding for those kinds of programs. Um, Cause I felt like a lot came out in that 2020 time range and then it kind of dried up and now we're starting to see it being advocated for and included in like the next fiscal year bills, because 
we have community loud enough now who don't see ourselves represented calling for this change. And I think we're slowly starting to see it. Um, but yeah, I think it just, it makes it super important to do the internal work first before you do any outwardly commitments of, we don't stand for this. We want to do this. And if you don't have that infrastructure in place already, um, it's going to fail. And sadly, I think I was in that first wave of it failed. Um, and I'm seeing these experiences of other athletes having a better experience than me. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so happy it's happening for them. Um, but yeah, this has always made me weary. And that's like one of the first questions I always ask when I'm meeting with a partner, potentially a brand is like, what, what is, what are you doing internally? How is this infrastructure set up? Who is part of the DEI community? Who is on the board? Is there equal representation? Um, do you guys have someone that is knowledgeable in this area? Or like, who are you hiring for these anti-racism trainings? Like a lot of the time it was white people. Um, and it's like, why wouldn't you be hiring the, the subject matter experts doing anti-racism training? Um, and so that's where I always start off with before I decide if it's worth moving towards. And a lot of the time it is now. Um, or sometimes I'll just leave it as like, it doesn't seem like you have the framework built yet. Um, and you're still kind of like brainstorming and idea creation, but follow back with us. Like when you feel like things are in, in the right place. Um, because I always like to leave the door open. I don't ever like to shut the door, even if people make a mistake and even the brands that harmed me, I'm still open to talking to them. Um, because I do believe people can change and people can grow. It's just, if they're ready to acknowledge that they made a mistake um, and moving forward. Yeah. One, one thing at a time, I know that we're coming up on having to let you go um, again, wearing many hats, very, very full hands and arms at all times. Um, but we'd love to hear a little bit. We know that, you know, you mentioned that there's a, a storytelling um, arm that's going to be coming more and more important for the rising hearts group. And we'd love to hear a little bit about, I think you've got a film coming out in the near term called no, no, no to run. Is that correct? Can yes, you tell us so, a little bit about that? Yes. So through our running on native lands initiative, we had the opportunity to work with goo energy labs last year for the 2022 Western States. Um, and that provided us the opportunity to support Yataka star fields an indigenous runner and artist who ran Western States. And we got to support him. So we decided to document that whole opportunity is <laughs> artwork. Um, awesome. I love it. Um, and that provided us the opportunity to document what I felt like is a really even historic opportunity that is changing within the trail community. I know we have so many people pushing for change and access and diversity and everything. Um, but what I saw was an opportunity to have this conversation with Western states of like, okay, how, how do we make this a more inclusive space? How do we increase the representation of black, brown, Asian, um, adaptive athletes within this community? How can we make this a better experience? And so, um, it really, that film is 10 minutes long, No to Run Yataka, and it really documents his experience and him kind of being the center of this web 
and we're helping to facilitate all these conversations and bringing these issues to light and creating these opportunities. And we got to have the first ever Indigenous Runners panel last year, um, the first ever Land Blessing by Herman Fillmore from the Washoe community last year, the cultural presentation that happened by Herman. We had the first ever poster made by Yotica last year, and he did it again this year. Um, and then that led into year two of our kinship with Goo. And now we're actually officially partnering with Western states. Um, and so we had another land blessing this year and we had another panel and all of these amazing opportunities. And so we're, now we're starting to do the work of now we got our foot in the door and we have this opportunity to be a voice. So now we're trying to collectively bring community that was there over the last two years with us who had their own experiences of how either went well or it didn't go well. And then we have other people, other community advocates from the outside who really focus on diversity and accessibility um, who are gonna be part of these conversations. And so what we're trying to propose is a whole bunch of things to hopefully change within the Western states experience, not fully, but in the, in the parts that are most important in making sure that we see ourselves within that Western state space and that it's a safe space, but it's also a space that, you know, we feel like we have access to. Um, and so we're really excited for those deeper conversations to start happening as we're starting to plan them out. Awesome. I think the last thing before we, we'll get you out of here is just where can we find you and Rising Hearts next? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Native in LA um, at rising underscore hearts. And you can find us also risinghearts.org where you can learn all about our programming. You can sign up to join our email list. We're going to have a bunch of one-of-a-kind merch right now going to be on there. Um, the artwork that Keely just showed, Yadika's beautiful artwork of the, I think that, what was that? The horse hills? No, that was this year's. Um, but it's a specific place up in a, a Tahoe that was really important to the Washoe community, but that artwork's going to be on a trail running bag um, that we collaborated with Boko on. And then we're going to have Yadika's artwork that's on the raspberry lemonade gel with goo um, is going to be on a trail running hat. And so oh, we're cool. going to that merch and hopefully that funding will be put towards episode two of No to Run, which is about Callie um, who had her experience at Western States this year. Um, and hopefully start just saving money for episode three for next year. That was so cool. And the strawberry lemonade gel that you guys collaborate on together is phenomenal. It's my favorite gel. It's been doing <laughs> so well. Good. I'm so happy it's doing well because we're we're a partner with them. We're their Goo Gives Back recipient. And so 10% of the profits cool. go back to Rising Hearts. And so very cool. It features Yadika's beautiful artwork. Mm -hmm. All of his amazingness, but it also tastes really good. Well, you know, we said we hoped that you liked that interview as much as we did. I sure hope that's true. We are very excited about the film projects and storytelling projects that they have coming down the pipeline. Um, go find the film that's out on Yattica Star Fields and their running of the 2022 Western States. Um, Keeley's got the poster they made for last year's edition of the race um, on her wall. Really, really cool. They've got another one coming out with Cali, which is in collaboration with Goo Energy Labs, um, talking about body image in sport. I cannot wait to see that one come out um, following Cali's journey to Western States from afar as a social media parasocial human um, was really, really inspiring too. So everything that Jordan's doing 
we will be championing for forever, I'm pretty sure. So check out the links in our description for this. You can go and find Jordan all over the place again, including at Native in LA on Instagram. It is a great follow, um, as well as the www.risinghearts.org, which is going to link to everything that that organization is doing. Um, So head over there right now, I guess, finish listening to the podcast and then head over right there. And to round things out, we've got some society slamming to do for you all. Hilly, you pulled these in. Why don't you start us off with number one? Yeah. So, um, just going to read it. That's okay. (laughs) Um, so Hey ladies. Hello. Um, over time, it's been so much fun to hear about how you implement cycling into your training and learn about the multi-sport realm for a runner slash triathlete. I love all of this stuff. What are your bike maintenance tips? She says, especially for Hilly. Oh boy. How do you keep everything running well after a race on the gravel? Bikes are a bit more complicated than our normal running shoes. Um, oh yes, they are. Um, <laughs> anyways, thank you for all that you do. Absolutely love listening each week. And I have another athlete who struggled with an eating disorder. So hearing all of you speak so openly about fueling and strong bodies each week, each week is a gift. Oh, thank you. Um, oh yeah. So this is actually something I hated about cycling when I first got it. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, I have to like, it's intimidating. Make- it's intimidating, yeah. right? It's intimidating, intimidating to be yeah. like, how do I deal with mechanicals? How do I deal with bike maintenance? Right. Like this is mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I like went off the deep end. So I was like, I'm going to get into cycling. I am a Duras athlete. I'm going to do the unbound 200 mile race. Okay. I mean, I did it, but like the first, and like the first thing that was my biggest fear was like, Oh my gosh, what happens if I get a flat? So I practiced and like, I got a flat during the race and I changed it. And honestly, the biggest thing that I can say is it's super empowering to be able to like, you don't have to, you don't have to be a bike mechanic. Although like every single time I ride a bike and something happens, I'm like, I have to be a bike mechanic because I don't know what's wrong, but, um, the more that you learn, it's like really empowering to be able to fix like little things. And, um, the biggest thing that I've learned about bike maintenance is just, you know, just like, you know, little things like making sure that the chain is lubed, like rubbing it down and like, just do the like washing, you know, washing your, you washing your bike. It's just like, it's, it's little things. And then if you don't know how to do something like you, you know, you have a mechanic and what's so cool about these big races is that, you know, if you need help, um, like out on the course, like you can ask for it and someone, someone will help you. Um, but I think it's also just like, instead of just being like, oh crap, like, I don't know how to do this. And and like kind of counting yourself out, like try. And like, honestly, these things have happened to me (laughs) in the middle of nowhere and I've had service and I've just YouTubed it. And I was like, I think this is what's wrong. And then I can kind of like fix it and I can learn a little bit more every time. But, you know, that's like kind of as you go. But I think really the biggest thing is just little things like wash your bike and lube the chain, know how to change a flat. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. And always have your tools. Yes. (laughs) Even if it's a short ride, you're like, oh, it's a short ride. No, just take them. Just never know. Yeah. Agreed. I never leave any anywhere without it without those. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's critical. Have that tube, have that CO2, have the plug, et cetera. It's just nice to have a little bit of everything in that saddlebag with you or in your bike vest. Like I, I carry like a hand pump with me, mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. because it's like, sometimes you're out of CO2 cartridges or sometimes you can't like you're flustered and you waste the CO2 cartridges because it didn't quite work for you. So it's nice to have a hand pump as like a backup mm-hmm. for sure. So 
Yeah. Biking can be intimidating, but there's also a bunch of really good, like a lot of shops will run like women's only clinics, um, which I think can be less intimidating than like going to a general bike maintenance clinic because you feel like you're more, women are generally more likely to ask questions in those environments and like get, get out of it what they really need. So I'd um, also recommend like trying to find a local um, not even like a bike clinic, but a bike maintenance clinic um, in your area. Um, they'll often do like a women's night. And I think that those are just like so, so valuable to feel like you you are getting what you need out of it. And it's not intimidating to have, you know, these guys who project like they know what they're doing, but they're still the same clinic as you. So they obviously need something. So I'd uh, recommend going to one of those. Um, I think this is part of the same question technically, but I broke it into a second one. And there was another question about running. They're wondering kind of multi-sport again, does running with my poles help for my skiing? Does skiing with my poles help for my running, mm. et cetera? Kind of wondering like whether to use poles or not, et cetera, just kind of broadly. And Keely, since you've spent some time thinking about this, writing about this, et cetera, I'm wondering if you just want to give a quick, a quick kind of like you know, three bullet points about why someone might want to use poles or how to practice with them, when when to use, when to not use, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that's come out of Nico Giovanelli's research in Italy is that poles are really not helpful unless you actually use them. And so in this case, like he doesn't necessarily address skiing versus running head on, but I would have to wager that if you do use your poles frequently for running and you use your poles frequently for skiing, like that will translate to you being able to use them efficiently in the other sport. But I wouldn't say like rely on that solely. Like I wouldn't just ski and then use the poles right away for a really important race in running, like mm -hmm. still practice in running and skiing. Um, and I know that it varies with terrain as well. So like the efficiency you're going to get out of poles on different terrains and different grades is going to vary and it's going to be very individualized. And so again, like using the poles and just knowing when you feel like you're working harder. Like I love to kind of do little experiments on myself when I'm using poles on steep stuff is like, okay, use poles and see like how fast you're climbing it and what your heart rate's at. And then maybe the next time don't use poles and like, see what your heart rate's at and what kind of time you climbed it in. And then be like, cool for me, like poles on this kind of a terrain and grade is like 100% necessary, but on this kind of terrain and grade, it's not. And so it's really like individualized, like most things, but if you do practice with poles, like they're going to be advantageous to you. And so, yeah, just, just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. I find too, that that helps you use like the kind of not, not correct muscle groups, but like if you use pole skiing, you're more likely to like use your lats, mm -hmm. et cetera, kind of your bigger upper body muscles. Um, versus if you're unfamiliar with poles, you generally like gravitate towards shorter poles and using more of like your biceps, like mm -hmm. bicep focus, which is like your biceps kind of not like not a big muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, so having that ski practice is important or even just like hiking versus running, right? Like, um, that was a really cool thing to talk to Cole Watson about post, post canyons about a specific climb on the course. Cause he ran that course a ton in practice. And he said, you know, I knew that I was only 90 seconds slower hiking that hill than running that hill. And I knew that that wasn't going to matter. And I was going to like, take it so much easier if I hiked it type of thing. And it's like knowing that about yourself, like how fast, like how much, like what that difference is between hiking or trying to run something, um, can go a long way in a long race as well. So just kind of being cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then one side note, that's not really related to efficiency with poles, but maybe it is in the long grand scheme of things is that I've had a lot of athletes who 
want to use poles for races, they start practicing with them. And I try to emphasize to them, like, Hey, you got to figure out how to fuel with poles. Mm -hmm. And at first they're like, what do you mean? Like, I'll be fine. And then I get a text after the run, like, Oh, (laughs) I forgot (laughs) to eat and drink. Yeah. And so it's like practicing with them is even more important to really dial in how your fueling goes during a race with poles, because it does change the dynamic a little bit. You got to figure out which hand you want to put them in when you're eating, how you're going to balance the fueling while you're going uphill. If you have the poles out, if you're going downhill with the poles in your hand, um, just a lot of things to finesse before race day. Again, never try anything new on race day. Yeah. How many Americans have gone over to CCC and like (laughs) used poles for the first time and like then 90 minutes into a climb and been like, Oh, I haven't had any food or liquid for 90 minutes. So (laughs) important. And then kind of final one, super, super quick. Someone wrote in and said, I'm curious how, what to eat after a long, hard run. I never feel hungry afterwards and often even have a bit of an upset stomach. It's just so hard to eat but I know I have to read the benefits of all that work I just did. Thank you so much. Love your podcast and all the work mm-hmm. you do for women in ultra running. I would say, go listen to episode 44 <laughs> with, with, with Wilfredo. He covers this question, but essentially it's mm-hmm. the like baby steps. Yeah. What can you not eat anything? What about, oh, you can get in a recovery drink or a smoothie, or it's kind of baby yeah. stepping into being able to yep. eat more post run. You do, you like release specific enzymes and hormones and it's really that like naturally are appetite suppressants. Steph yeah. Howe actually did her PhD on this topic, um, which is super nerdy and very cool. But essentially it's like, listen to that episode number 44 with, with Wilfredo, but it's going to be about like, what can you do versus what can't you do yeah. and getting something little in along the way. Is there anything right. that, do you guys have a favorite thing to eat post, post run? Maybe it's a hot run or an interval day or like, I know for me, those are the days where I'm like, oh, like my stomach's just a little bit off. Yeah. For me, it's like, it's just, it's just, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, basically making like making sure that I can drink after a long run, right? Like if it's a hot day, I'll have something cold and I'll have my recovery shake in there. So if I feel like I can drink and I'm thirsty, so it's like disguising your, like your nutrition and something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can usually drink. So if it's after a hot mm-hmm. run, something cold and refreshing with some extra nutrients in there. So then I can kind of extend that window a little bit. Then when I have my appetite back, I can eat. And then controversy like uh, for a hot day or a cold day, I'll have something warm. Like that's usually just the best of like ending to run with like a nice, like hot chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think goo recovery, obviously I'm biased because that's the one I use, but I think it's like a pretty light flavor. And so like mixing it with water, like it feels like it doesn't even have much of a taste. So you can just pound that like you're thirsty after a race or a run and you get, you know, 20 grams of protein, good ratio with carbohydrates. And then what I've found is like, when I don't do that, I'm less likely to eat later because like, I haven't got my appetite back. My stomach's still kind of mad, but if I do that after a run and have that drink within like 30, 20 minutes, then I am hungry later and like able to eat more. And so I feel like it's kind of like helpful to get that in. And even if it is liquid calories, it's still calories and it will kind of get your stomach going. At least it does for me. Awesome. Great advice. And then again, listen to episode 44. Okay. Um, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, go and leave us a review. Um, give us a million stars, whatever the <laughs> max is. That's how many we would like. Thank you. Um, and until next time, we will see you on the trails. <laughs> <laughs>